Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Let's get into the Word together. I'm going to continue on in a little mini-series that I started last week called Hope in the Midst of Chaos. Hope in the Midst of Chaos. It was only going to be two messages, two parts, but it's now three. It's now three. I'm going to go back a little bit from last week, do a little review. I'm going to clarify a few points and then bring out one more quick application. And then I'm going to speak one more message out of this message here about the cup of trembling. And I'm going to talk about the four major fears that the judgment of God brings on a nation and how God has called us as the church to put that cup, to put those fears down. And I'm going to explain how to do that next time. This time, we'll get into a few other things All right, Father, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We love you, love you, love you, Lord God. You have been so, so good as we sung this morning, Lord. And God, we pray over your word. We know, God, that it truly is a lamp unto our feet, and we are facing some very confusing times. We need the lamp to shine brightly today. And Holy Spirit, we pray for your anointing to do just that. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right. Well, last week, we spoke a little bit of what was happening in our nation and around the rest of the Western world by reading Romans chapter 1 together. God is giving us over to a debased mind. He's giving us over to unholy passions, to the lust of our own hearts. And we said that this was a form of judgment on America for our unwillingness to acknowledge God as God, and to give him the thanksgiving and the praise that he truly deserves. But we also said that there's this incredible redemptive plan that God is working out through the midst of his divine judgment. And we said we know that from the patterns we see in the Old Testament, how God dealt with the nation of Israel. There were five specific judgments in the form of captivities that Israel had gone through. Let me put them back up on the screen so you can see them. Ready? There was the Assyrian captivity, then there was Babylon captivity, there were the Medes and the Persians, and then there was Greece, and then there was Rome. The first three, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians, they came down and they fought against the northern and southern kingdom of Israel. They won, took the people captive, and then dispersed them throughout their provinces and all of their empires. Then Greece eventually rose to power, and when Greece rose to power, they made the decision to Hellenize the nations, which meant everybody had to learn Greek culture and Greek language. Then Rome stepped up on the scene and they put in a road system, an intricate road system, to be able to move their military and to be able to help with trade. Now, five specific judgments, all in the form of captivities, yet God was working out an incredible redemptive plan for all of humanity. 
right? He took his people, the Israelites, who were in the promised land, and through the judgments, he dispersed them into every major city throughout the ancient world where the Jews, his people, began to gather together and they built synagogues because they no longer had the temple to be able to worship at. Then God unified the language where everybody could understand themselves and understand each other, and then he put in a road system that people could be able to travel so that when Jesus steps up on the scene, when Jesus comes in the virgin birth, in the fulfillment of time, because that's what the Bible says, certain things needed to be established, certain things needed to be done before he could come through these five specific judgments. When Jesus shows up on the scene, he dies, resurrects, pours out his spirit, and now the church and the apostles, get this, they have synagogues in every major city around the world where people are gathering and reading through the Torah and reading through the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They have a unified language that everybody can understand that they can begin writing letters to the churches where they could start sharing them from city to city, which will become our New Testament, our Bible, right? And they have roads that they could travel to be able to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Oh my goodness. Through all of those judgments, God had a redemptive purpose for humanity. And let me tell you, God is doing the exact same thing today. The only difference is the promise that we look to through divine judgment isn't the coming Messiah because that's already happened. Even though we have to take that message and spread it to the ends of the earth because not everybody has heard it. But the promise we look to, especially in the Western world, through all the divine judgments that we're experiencing around us, is a last day outpouring of the Holy Spirit spoken about in Joel chapter 2. In fact, let me go back and show you my sermon outline for last week so we could just kind of remember a little bit. Ready? We talked about four major things. Number one, we talked about what's going on with our nation. Number two, we said God always has a redemptive plan amid chaos. Number three, we talked about in the last days, God is preparing hearts for an outpouring of his spirit. And we talked about number four, what we need to do as the church and what is our role and responsibility. We're going to talk a little bit more on number four today. Now we said because God is giving people over to a debased mind, that they will no longer be able to think straight or be able to apprehend truth, which means it's gonna be very confusing for all of us because nothing is gonna be predictable anymore. Where we would say, this is how logic works. Logic is gonna start going out the window. Do you understand? So we're gonna say, well, big business, obviously, they want the bottom line. That's what they do, right? Or news outlets, this is what they do. Or what? That's not gonna be the rules of engagement anymore because the minds no longer can think logically. God is giving us over to, a, to being a, a debased mind, right? So because things are confusing, many people are gonna start rising up and they're gonna to try to fill in the gaps of what they do not understand through vain imaginations. You're gonna hear it all over the news. You're gonna hear it all over social media. You're gonna hear it all over apps. People that are gonna get up and say, this is what's gonna happen over the next six months. Or this is what's gonna happen over the next year. Or this is what's gonna happen. And in reality, they might know a piece of it, but they don't know the whole picture. And they're going to be saying these things and they're going to be confusing you. And not only are there going to be a million voices in the world that you're going to be have to contend with, but there are going to be voices even in the church. Because the one thing the church in America and the Western world doesn't do really well at 
is a little bit of mystery and walking by faith. We always want the answers. We want to know what's coming down the pipe. One week, two weeks, six weeks, right? Six months out, one year. We want to know it all. But sometimes God calls us into a season where he doesn't tell us all and we have to walk day by day by faith. And because that's so difficult and the anxiousness and the fear in our own hearts could get a hold of us, many in the church will begin to take some of the spiritual gifts like prophecy, like words of knowledge, like words of wisdom, and they will begin to speak out words that God had never given to them. Now, that doesn't mean we don't need prophecy in the church. Prophecy needs to operate until the day Jesus comes back. That's what the Bible says. We need that. But we need a discernment to know what is from God and what is from the flesh. Because we have very confusing days ahead. So we said, we need to learn to get our direction from God. Every single one of us has to learn to get direction from the Lord. And we said one of the ways that we get direction from God is we grow in our love and our consecration to him. When your love is ever increasing and ever growing for the Lord and it's taking control of your life, love has this unique power to set up this gravitational pull that becomes kind of like this true north where you just know what to do in the moment that you're supposed to do it. Love has the power to clarify. Love has the power to define. Love has the power to give direction. When your love grows, your understanding in the moment, not before, but in the moment becomes more clear. Okay, now we're up to speed from last week. So now I want to just take it a little bit further and I want to speak about one of the major confusing areas that the church is going to have to deal with in the coming days. And it's this question. Are you ready? I'm going to put it up on the screen. Here it comes. This is the question. How involved should the body of Christ get when it comes to politics? Has anybody else in this room been asking this question? Right? How involved should we get? There's so many voices, so much going on. What should we begin to do, right? And I want to begin to answer that question. Now, I've spoken on this before, but, but like you and me, myself included, I forget some of the messages that I speak. So I'm going to go back and do a little bit of review, and then, like I said, bring a fresh word of application, okay? So what I want you to do is turn with me to Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 17. And I want you to listen to this story. This is so important. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God, the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Mark says they sent to him the Pharisees and the Herodians to try to trap him. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is, what was the trap? See, the Pharisees and the Herodians were both God's people. The Pharisees were committed to staying separate from society and especially from politics, where the Herodians were committed to getting involved in society and getting involved in government, trying to use their influence for the good. And here's the truth. We still got a lot of Pharisees 
and a lot of Herodians in the church today. Right? There's a large part of the church that says we need, like the Herodians, to get involved in government. We need to get involved in politics. We need to use our influence to bring about changes for the good. We need to be salt. We need to be light for the world. But then there's others in the church that say, no, 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 no. We can't get involved with these political debates or this type of discourse because if we get involved and we try to use our influence to steer the government, then the corruption and the attitudes of the world will begin to seep into the church and we're going to lose our consecration. We're going to lose our testimony. God's chosen people, the church, Pharisees and Herodians, debating, talking about, fighting about the same exact thing that they were fighting, talking about, and debating during Jesus' time. But what was the trap? Notice what they said. They said, should we or shouldn't we pay taxes? I like that question. I like to know that myself. Should we or shouldn't we pay taxes? Amen? Right? Really what they were saying is, should we or shouldn't we get involved? Should we or shouldn't we help? Should we or shouldn't we intercept into the government? Is that something that we should be a part of? And notice how they phrased the question. Because they said, is it lawful or not? In other words, what they were saying is, Jesus, we want a yes and no answer. In other words, we don't want you just to answer the question, but we want you to answer the question in such a way that it's black and white. Do you see the trap? See, the trap was taking a very complex issue that has all types of nuances that come with it. The idea of the relationship between the church and the state and trying to boil it all down to a yes or no answer. And Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he answers with such complexity that he puts a duty on every one of the listeners to have to pray, to have to discern, to have to think for themselves when it comes to every situation that involves the government. And they marveled. You know what they said when they marveled? This is what they were really saying. That makes sense. Like it's not yes or no. It's not black and white. Every issue I got to pray through, everything I got to seek, because there's a lot of nuances and complexities that come with this. Now, I said last week that there's a need for Christians to be salt and light in every sphere of society, especially the government. Oh my gosh. There's a need for people to stand up for what's right and to speak truth, even when it comes to losing their own jobs. We need Christians to answer the call to get on school boards, to be town mayors, to run from governors, to run for congressmen, congresswomen. And we as the church need to support those who have a political calling on their life to public service. We have to pray for them. We have to get around. But listen to me, even though that is all true, there's tons of complexity that surround those issues and those relationships. See, just getting the right people elected, are you ready for this? And just standing up for what is right will not be able to break the spiritual strongholds that we're dealing with in our nation. So it's needed, but at the same time, it's not the whole picture. Do you hear what I'm saying? Right? It's so much more complex than we like to make it out to be. We can't fight these types of battles with the weapons of the world. 
We got to get people elected. We got to get people in public office. We got to answer the call of God in these areas and these arenas. But at the same time, we can't fight with the same weapons of the world because we fight these battles, listen to me, through getting on our knees in prayer. We fight these battles for gathering every week as a church on Wednesday nights and seeking the face of God. We fight these battles through our humility and through our surrender to the will of God in every area of a life, including our private life, our marriages and our singleness, as well as our public discourse. There's a power that comes over a nation and a church that begins to interact with God that way. Ryan Hewitt spoke a message here at this pulpit about a year ago or two years ago, and it stuck with me, man. It was such a powerful message. And he was speaking out of the story in the book of Judges, chapter 19 and 20. One of the weirdest stories you will ever read in your Bible. You're thinking, I've read some weird ones. No, <laughs> oh my goodness, not like this one. A Levite and his concubine, they go into a village in the nation of Israel and, and the concubine ends up getting raped and getting murdered. And the Levite takes the concubine all the way home and what does he do? He cuts up his concubine into 12 pieces and he sends these pieces out to every tribe throughout Israel, all 12 of them. They gather together, they hear what happens and then they make the decision to go and fight against the town, the village and the tribe that was responsible, which was the tribe of Benjamin. So here's the crazy part. Are you ready for this? Israel had 400,000 fighting men on their side from all the tribes. 400,000. Do you know how many Benjamin had? 26,000. Okay, do the math in your head. 400,000 against 26,000. Israel had 16 times the amount of men that were about to go to war. And to get this, guess who wins? Benjamin wins. They slaughter the Israelites. And then here's the real crazy part. Israel actually had a command and a commissioning from God to go and fight against the sexual perversion in this tribe and to deal with it, and they still lost. In fact, they came back again and regrouped their effort a second time. They went to fight a second time, and they lost a second time, two times in a row. And then you read in the story that when they come into the camp, even after God told them to go, after God gave them the commissioning, after God said, don't compromise with this thing, enter your nation, deal with this thing, after they lost, even after that, what they began to do, and this is so important, is they began to humble themselves, they called for the Ark of the Covenant, they began to fast, they began to pray, and then watch this, the Holy Spirit came on the men and the people, and they began to travail and began to weep for what was happening in their nation. They began to experience the heart of God. Then God says, now that you know my heart, you can get up and go. And they get up from that understanding of God's heart, carrying his heart, understanding his burden, walking in his pain, and they go and they fight against the Benjaminites. And this time they break the spiritual strongholds and they win. See, the church, when it comes to issues of politics, has to deal with much more complexity than people actually like. We live in this world. We need to be lights for the kingdom, but we have to remember, even though we live in this world, we don't fight with the same weapons of this world, which means I have a duty, because I live in this world, to vote because I'm under a constitutional republic. That's my, that's my duty to my nation. I do that. I have a duty, if God calls me to public service, to answer the call. The church has a duty to support people that are doing that. 
But the way that I serve is through prayer and humility and submission to God. The way I don't serve is trying to just gain power in all means necessary for the greater good. Because just like the Israelites, you could get all the power and all the influence. You could have 400,000 on your side and only 26,000 on this side. And listen to me, it will still fail. You can't break spiritual strongholds just by gaining worldly power. It does not work. It won't work. So do we need people there? Do we need those that will go to war? Yes, Israel had to go to war. But their fighting alone couldn't bring that down. There had to be something more that was a part of it. Does that make sense? I feel like everyone's just looking at me like a deer in headlights. Like, yeah, it kind of makes sense. But where are you going with it? Okay. Now, with that said, with that said, listen to me. The church needs to be very careful in this hour. Very careful. Because God has anointed the church to be the prophetic voice in society. Let that marinate for a second. We are called to be the prophetic voice in society, which means God has called us to be the referees in this football game of life and of politics. So if we are the refs, I want you to get this, that means we're not on any team. I might literally be registered to vote Republican, but I'm not a Republican. And I might be able to be registered to vote Democrat, but I'm not a Democrat. I'm the ref. I'm the ref, and God has given us the playbook, which is the Bible, and we're the ones who are calling the plays. We're saying, out of bounds on that side. We're saying, holding on that side. We're saying, no, 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 according to God's word, that's not how it's supposed to operate. That's not how it's supposed to function. We're supposed to be the prophetic voice. We're supposed to say, no, that's not okay. No, that's not right. And listen to me. When the church begins to become tribal and we begin to give our allegiance to a specific party at all costs, we lose our prophetic edge. We lose it. It's gone. Society will not listen to the church anymore. So what we do is we get a bunch of church people together that can rally and say, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to do, we're a part of this team. We're a part of that. But the rest of the world looks at them and says, no, 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 you're just spiritually manipulating the political system. That's what you're doing. And they won't hear the gospel anymore because we lose our prophetic voice. We got so into this that we're not speaking the way God has called us to speak. I've seen it. Many of you have seen it even with your own families. How many have gotten into a rough discussion? Son or a daughter or a cousin, an aunt and an uncle. And you go toe-to-toe -to -toe on politics, right? Let me tell you something. They ain't changing their mind. You ain't winning them. Speak all you want until God opens up their eyes. Oh, but if they would see you for a second. Yeah, I'm concerned about these things. Yeah, I deal with these things. Yeah, we go through these things. But let me tell you about Jesus. Let me show you something in the Bible. Or let me tell you, this side did this that was wrong. This side did, and they see an equal treatment on both sides. Their hearts will begin to open to the gospel because there's a prophetic voice that's beginning to speak. I gotta be quiet because I shouldn't go too far. I got to rein myself in. Pastor Michael, don't say that. Don't say it. Okay, listen to me. That doesn't mean that we don't support certain candidates. And that doesn't mean we don't get behind political causes. We do. But we hold those candidates and those political causes to the same exact standard in every area of their life that we hold everybody else to. We call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. There was a person who called into the church. They talked to Marlene, and um, they were in a certain lifestyle. And they said, if I come to this church, will you try to change me? 
Marlene came to me. She's like, you have to have the answer. You're the pastor here. I was like, Marlene, be ready in and out of season. Listen, you got the answers. Just tell. But she came to me. She says, well, what's the answer to it? And this is what I said. I said, you go back and tell her all of our lives are changing because we're all aligning to the word of God. We're like, I align to this. That means people in the church are holding my life accountable to it. That means I, as a pastor, are holding their lives accountable to it. All of us are changing and aligning. We don't change the word of God to align with our lives. Our lives begin to change and align with the word of God. And it doesn't matter. God doesn't care about Republican, Democrat, liberal, libertarian. He doesn't he don't care about any of that. All that matters is that we're conformed into the very image of Christ. You know, my mom was asked to run for Congress at one point. Do you guys know my mom has been in politics pretty much my whole life? She's been on school boards, presidents of school boards. She's been town mayors. She's been local freeholders. She was asked at one point to actually run for Congress. And you know what she said to me? It was so interesting. She, I said, Mom, are you going to do it? She was praying about it. She said, number one, it takes a lot of money, a lot of money to do this. But number two, she says, I got more involved in it. There was compromises that I had to make in my life and in my own walk with God that I didn't feel comfortable with. You know what I said to her? I looked at her and said, Mom, I'm proud of you. She shut the door. She says, I'm done with that. I said, I'm proud of you. She said, why? I said, because if God wants you there, he's going to put you there. But listen to me, like Daniel, you don't eat the king's meat. You don't touch that. You don't go near that. If God wants you there, he will put you there. He put Daniel there where he needed to be. He put Joseph in front of Pharaoh. You'll be where you need to be, and we'll pray for that. But you don't defile yourself or make compromises so that you could be there. You walk with the Lord the way he called you to walk. Now, some of you might be saying, that sounds kind of harsh. That's the word of God. That's the Bible. That's how we live. Let me read you a piece of an article that I was studying through this last week on the Gospel Coalition. And I, I love what the author had said. He said this. He says, it's incumbent upon churches and Christian institutions today that they orient around the true gospel, the one given to us by God and scripture, rather than around the various perverse gospels that tempt us. Prosperity, power, politics, self-help. Now look what he says. This will mean churches and Christian institutions will not fit easily into the all or nothing tribes of our day. Because to be, a prof to be prophetic from the center point of the gospel is to challenge multiple sides at the same time. We're not going to fit in anywhere as Christians as the days go on. We are pilgrims. We are foreigners on this earth. And you're going to find as things heat up in our country and around the world, we're not going to fit. Because we were never meant to fit. I'm not on a team. I'm a referee. Does that make sense? I'm going to let that marinate with you just a little bit, right? Because I want, and what God has anointed me to be, is to be the voice of truth, to be the voice of the gospel. Not the voice of the Republican Party, not the voice of the Democrat Party, not the voice of Fox News, and not the voice of CNN. I need to be the voice of the gospel. The voice of truth. Now with all that said, again, we support people who have a call for public service. We want to see Christians get elected in our country. We need to be salt and light. Pastor Michael, this sounds complex. This sounds really nuanced. Welcome to what Jesus said. It's not easy the way we think. It's not as black and white as we try to make it out to be. There are people with callings that are called to do that in this place. And I want you to tell you, I'm championing for you. I'm saying go, and we're gonna be your prayer support to see God do things through your life in those arenas. We need it. Okay. 
Pastor Michael, now this is really complex and I'm all over the map and I'm trying to figure out what you're trying to say. How in the world do I make sure that I have a pure gospel in the days ahead that are so divisive and so po political? How do I make sure, especially when me, myself, my, myself, are being called into the political arena? How do I make sure my, I stay on point, I stay in the truth, that the gospel is pure? What, what do I do to be able to do that? Well, I talked about it last week just briefly, but I want to take it even a step further. See, well, before Jesus ever commissioned Peter and told him to go to the ends of the earth and to preach the gospel to all men, tribes, and languages, he came and he found Peter in John chapter 21, and he sat down and had a conversation with him, and he asked him the same question three times, ready? Let me show it to you. John chapter 21, let me read it to you, and I want you to see this. Watch what Jesus does. He says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Jesus was saying to Peter, if you want to stay focused and you want to finish your race well, and you want to make sure that you always have the true gospel that you're preaching to the churches and to the lost, feeding my sheep, feeding my sheep. He says this to him. He says, then Peter, you have to check your heart. You have to make sure that you love me. And not only do you love me, but your love for me is ever increasing and ever growing. That's why he asked him three times. Do you love me? Do you love? He's saying, Peter, after everything I've done for you, now that I've come and recommissioned you, after you've seen my cross and my resurrection, do you love me? Is your love for me growing? Now, why would Jesus ask that? Because like we said at the beginning of the sermon, love has this very unique quality and this power to be able to align our lives to things that are right. It gives us a true north. It defines things. It clarifies things. It prioritizes things. It makes first things first and second things second. When our love for God is ever increasing, when our love for God is ever growing, well, how do I know that my love for God is ever increasing and ever growing? By what comes out of your mouth. What you speak about is attached to your heart. Jesus said it himself. He said this, he said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks. When you love Jesus, you talk to him about him more than politics. When you love Jesus, you talk about him more than entertainment. When you love Jesus, you talk to him, talk about him more than hobbies, uh, the economy, finances, houses, whatever it is. That's what begins to flow out of your heart. But the church, according to the Bible, not only needs to grow if they're going to have this type of prioritization and this type of clarity in their love for Jesus, they have to grow in their love for his second coming. Oh my goodness, man. The Bible makes it very clear that if you're born again, there's a groan that's been placed in you by the Spirit of God. There's a groan that came through the spiritual new birth where we long for Jesus' coming. 
We say, I long to see him again. It, it, it rises up inside of us where we talk about it with friends and family, thinking about it. Will it be in my generation? Will it happen in generations to come? It, it, it should come out of us when we're driving home from work. Oh, Lord, I long for you to return and to bring justice to this earth and set everything right. It should come out in our worship time. It should come out when we speak. And if it's not there, if something isn't there that we're groaning for his coming, then something is wrong because the Bible says the bride and the spirit, they both say, come, Lord Jesus. It says, come. Come, Lord God. When that groaning is alive and well, it brings a right balance to how we involve ourselves in the affairs of this life. We still fight for what is right in society. We pursue peace according to the word, but it doesn't consume us. And we're not shaking when things begin to fall apart because we know that this is not ultimately our home. In fact, let me show you what Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his commentary in Romans chapter 13, this is what he said, and I love it. And I'm going to close with this. He says, so we realize that we are only here as strangers and pilgrims, travelers and sojourners. That again is one of the great differences between the Christian and the non-Christian. Non-Christians live for this life and this world alone. So they get excited about the state and about their political parties. They believe the state can work wonders and they are consequently full of a false optimism. That should never be true of the Christian. In fact, look what he says. He goes on. He says, I repeat that Christians do not set their affections on this world. They do not believe that the world will be reformed and will be made wonderful and perfect. Oh, of course not. They know it cannot happen. They have their eye on the second coming of Christ and the ushering in of the kingdom of God in a visible manner. So the relationship to the state is, in a sense, detached. They're in it, they're subject to it, they observe its rules and its laws, they are the best citizens, meaning they rise up for what is right, they vote, they do their duty according to a constitutional republic, yet the whole time there is a detachment. They're not lost in it, involved in it, thrilled by it, excited by it, ready to quarrel with people over it. They cannot because ultimately their citizenship is in heaven. So what if in this season of judgment on the Western world where God is giving people over to a debased mind, to unholy passions, to the lust of their own hearts, where things are no longer predictable and very confusing, what if God is using that judgment to detach the church from the things of this world and the hope of this world? What if he's detaching us so the Holy Spirit can birth in us that groaning, that cry again for his second coming? What if that's what's actually happening? And God understands until that groan is in his church, like the 400,000 Israelites that fought against Benjamin, until they felt the burden of God and the heart of God for themselves, until that was produced into his people, the victory and the revival that God is calling for cannot come. So what if God is allowing the church to be detached so that the Holy Spirit could begin to do that work? What if all of this, as difficult as it is, and I'm not making light of it, actually has an ultimate realization of where God is leading, something incredible that he is bringing us into that we've been crying out for for years? You know what's amazing? When COVID hit and the economy went crazy and everything, and everyone saw how, how much lunacy started to happen, you know what's amazing? It's the first time I heard the church talk about the rapture again. Everybody start talking about the rapture. 
oh, it's right around the corner. It's going to come. I was like, dude, I've never heard you even use that word over the last 20 years. Everybody's like, Jesus is going to be back. I was like, I've never heard the church even say that. I haven't heard people even preach on that before. They taught on it so much in the New Testament that the church in Thessalonica, listen to me, they thought they missed it. They woke up one day and said, did Jesus come back? Did everybody get taken under the rapture? They, they got so freaked out that Paul had to write a letter to them and say, don't worry, it didn't happen yet. That's how much they talked about it. I never heard it in the church until COVID hit. And it suddenly it's like, yeah, we're going we're to get raptured. And, God's gonna, and, and you know what's amazing? I wasn't putting it down. I was saying, finally. This is what the church was always supposed to be talking about. And you know what's amazing? Every revival you see throughout the history of man, if you pay attention, whether it's Azuzu Street, uh, the Great Awakening, the Wesleyan Movement, the Moravian Mission Movement that went for 100 years, the prayer meeting that took place in Hernhut, all of those revivals, do you know what was the same at every single core? They were talking about and they were seeking and they were waiting and believing for the second coming of Jesus. Every single revival had that at its very core. People that were getting saved were talking about the second coming of Jesus. There's something about when our eyes are on eternity, where that groaning is inside our heart, where we're consecrated to that thought that the Holy Spirit is able to move. I'm excited about that. You excited? Yeah. All right, so let's wrap this up. Are you ready? Are you ready? We need people to answer the call to public service. We need to support certain politicians, certain political causes. We need to pray for them, get behind them, but we need to understand the complexity that comes with it, that that alone will not be able to bring down the strongholds we're dealing with or bring about revival. The church needs to begin to gather and allow the Holy Spirit to do a work to bring back that love and that groaning for Jesus' second coming. And when that's birthed in the church, throughout the Western Hemisphere, throughout America, listen to me, that's when you're gonna see stuff start happening like you can't believe. Make sense? Confused? Tough. <laughs> right? That's the complexity of this stuff. Let's stand. Let's stand, church. Let's stand, church. Can we do this this morning? I'm just going to pray and close us, and then I'm going to have the worship just lead in a song, a worship team lead in a song of worship together. We're going to close by just worshiping the Lord. As we worship, I'll ask the prayer team just to come down to the front. If you need any prayer today, anything you need for, health, uh, healing, financial issues, family issues. They'll be here to pray for you uh, during the worship and after service. You could come and pray with them. Otherwise, after we're done worshiping, I'm going to dismiss you. And before you go, we got the adventure off table. We got community groups in our Connect Center if you want to get signed up for that. I know there's other things that I'm missing, but I'm sure we'll figure it all out at some point. Amen. What was that? What was it? Go to the church app. Oh, praise God, my wife. Thank you. Go to the church app, unless you're fasting from apps. Otherwise, just hear from the Spirit. All right. Lord, thank you for your goodness, Lord God. We thank you. God, I am so blessed by this church, and I'm blessed for those that have the calling to public service. And Lord, we support them in this house. But we come back and we recognize, Lord God, that we can't fight with the weapons of the world. So we submit to you now, Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would expose anything in us that's a blockade to that groaning that should love the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ.
Anything that's blocking it, Lord God, whatever it might be, the things of this world, Lord God, the indifference that's come over our hearts, the entertainment that we watch, whatever it is, we ask that you would begin to reveal it. You would begin to put a spotlight on it in our lives and you would begin to remove it and you would bring back that groaning where we talk about the coming of Jesus in this house, where we say, let's go to the mission field because Jesus is coming back. Let's get into prayer because Jesus is coming back. Let's get people elected and be salt and light for this world because Jesus is coming back. Let's evangelize because Jesus is coming back. Oh, let that be the very core that drives us, Lord God, into the revival that you're bringing into this generation. Holy Spirit, deal with our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's worship God with one song and then Springs Church, you are dismissed. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.